Welcome to Indies Who Sell, the craft podcast. I'm Mary Novak, a developmental editor, and my co-host is author Sylvia Frost. Many of you will be familiar with our guest today, Rosalind James. From her early breakout as the author of the Escape to New Zealand series, Rosalind has become a perennial romance bestseller. Today, she shares her unique perspective on writing romance to please the audience that's looking for something a little different from the latest trend, like her latest series, Not Quite a Billionaire. Hi, this is Rosalind. Hi, Rosalind. This is Sonia and Mary. It's so nice to talk to you. Yes, here I am. <laughs> Hello. Excellent. Hi. <laughs> Do you want to start it off, Mary? Sure. Um, I was curious about what led you to romance as your genre uh, in the first place? Well, um, like everything in my career, it's I sort of do stuff first and then realize why afterwards. Um, cool. <laughs> I love it. Um, unlike the entire rest of my life, um, but uh, where I normally very left-brained and but writing is a completely different process for me, right. which is very scary, but uh, very hard to trust. But uh, to answer that question, I um, I started writing a book because I've always had these daydreams in my head, these romantic daydreams that, as I said, are very unlike the rest of my life, and they can get quite they could get quite long and elaborate. But I never <laughs> thought of them as possible books. I just thought they were waste of time romantic daydreams. And finally, for some reason, when I was in New Zealand and having just gone through the Rugby World Cup, which was held in New Zealand. <laughs> And all the drama of that, I started having this typical daydream, and I just decided I would write a book. I would try writing a book, and I had no clue that I could write a book. I just thought, well, I'll start. And I started with a sex scene to see if I could do that, and I could, so then I just wrote the book. And so the short answer to the question is, I don't have any story ideas for anything else, so... <laughs> Fair enough. Could I follow up on what you just said about um, being a left brain person who then is a creative writer? Could you talk a little bit more about like your your thoughts on that? Or yeah, I'm curious. You used to work in marketing, right? So I worked, I worked in marketing and I worked in publishing on the editorial side for a, a long time. I I did that. Um, actually, I went to the University of Denver Publishing Institute when I was in my early 20s after graduation from college. And uh, then I worked on the editorial side in publishing for over 10 years. And then I went back um, to school and got an MBA. And then I worked in marketing for another 10 years, still in publishing, but a different kind of publishing, educational publishing. Okay. And, I, and I, so I've worked in legal publishing and educational publishing. So I had written a lot as a marketer. I'd written a lot of copy and that really, I found, really helped me a lot as a writer of fiction. But I had never, as I said, never thought of writing fiction. I had never written anything, never written a short story. So people who say writers write and writers have all written forever, that was not me. I just, I started. (laughs) Thank you. I was over 50 when I wrote my first fiction, so... That story to me is so inspirational, Rosalind. I think, you know, I I think you can hear a lot of people who say you have to write half a million words. But I think, you know, it's clear that everyone's journey is really different. And for us on the podcast, keeping that in mind is so key. I think our, our idea is that it's not so much to kind of find a formula that people can follow, but see what makes 
people what makes people successful and it's going to be a whole different thing and for me it's really interesting to hear you say that oh I, I never written but it seems clear to me if you work in publishing I feel like you have to have some idea of how to be clear <laughs> I think I think that's what it is I've always been a good writer I've always been a very clear writer my undergrad degree is in history from UC Berkeley which is a very uh, rigorous uh, writing kind of degree yeah. you write right. a lot and and when I got my MBA, I was always the one who wrote the group paper, you know, because I write very clearly. Right. And as I said, then I wrote marketing copy. And in marketing copy, this is this is what I've, I've really been thinking about when you asked me to be on the show. Yeah. Is I think that was really the best training because in any kind of writing, whether you're writing a paper or a white paper, you know, which I've done things like that as well for like government kind of stuff or or marketing, you're always telling a story. You yeah. have to engage your, and you always, you really, especially in marketing, the whole point is to sell. So you really have to put yourself in the position of the customer. And I wrote a lot of newsletters and things. And I always, and I wrote them, you know, for my company in a very easy breezy kind of voice, which suited the products and everything. And I think it's still the voice I have now, a very easy breezy kind of conversational mm -hmm, tone. Mm -hmm. But Definitely. I think I developed that writing writing that copy but in particular when you're writing something like catalog copy which is very short you're very constrained mm. and you have to get every word hitting you have to tell what the product's about in a very few words but also you know like they say sell the sizzle you still have to sell the sizzle not the steak with that so you're so you're telling them what it's about but you're also trying to trying to sell the sizzle you're trying yeah. to create a mood, to create a reason, to create excitement. And so you really have to, you really, I think what that did for me was really hone my ear in hearing how words sounded and how changing a word made it sound better. And really, and that's what I do now, I think that I do well, is I have a very a strong ear to hear what's clunky, you know, yeah. and well, awkward. I think some of this makes a great segue to our next question, which is about the way that you write details, especially like details in work settings, details and all sorts of things. Um, so it's interesting to think about how, like, I literally don't think I have ever read a romance heroine set in the working world with the sort of realism that I feel from yours, the just the details of like, in fierce hope that what early on is like, well, my boss is mad at me because I didn't read her mind. And I was like, yes, 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 that's it. <laughs> that's exactly, that's it. You get me. What is your approach to details in general? Because they yeah. seem so important. Do you do a lot of research? I do a lot of research, but also, you know, I think, honestly, I, I admire greatly authors who do well in their 20s and 30s. I just there's no way I could have done that. I think a certain amount of what I do is just from having lived in the world longer, mm. having worked for a long time and just having <laughs> known a lot of people and having been in a lot of situations myself. Yes, I do a lot of research. Um, I always try to... Uh, I, I know very little about craft per se. I, I must say that. I always feel like I'm the grandma Moses of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I picked up a little more as I've gone along. But one of the things I read that really made sense to me was somebody said, it's more important what you leave out than what you put in. Mm. And to me, what I put in is about 10% of what I know. Yeah. Like, 
I wrote a book that was all about um, tech, the tech industry in San Francisco. And to do that, you know, I did a ton of research. I talked to a ton of people because I wanted it to be about industrial espionage. So I talked to a ton of, of people in the tech industry. But, you know, very little of that made it into the book. But I have to, if I thoroughly understand it, then I can put in those details that will, that will make it seem authentic. And I think Dick Francis did that, you know, the mystery writer, mm. um, the great mystery writer, is he would, um, he would spend, with each book was about a different, you know, a different kind of job. And he would really go and really research that so that it was so grounded in, in reality. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I do a lot of research, and, but then only a little makes it in. But I enjoy research. I have, like I said, my degrees in history, and I've had a lot of jobs that required a lot of research. So I really enjoy that aspect. Yeah, it's been, it's been really transformative for me reading your stuff because as an author, one of the things I really gained from reading your books is like just that detail. It's just like so cool to see it. It's like, oh man, I got to have that, you know, because that's, and it's just really inspirational. So thanks. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting that you draw the line to mystery because I completely agree that um, I've been a hardcore mystery reader in my day. And a lot of the authors I would like the most, just as you're saying, would be people that research the setting a lot and really sort of, you might learn about like antiquarian bookstores in, you know, volume one and um, the basketball fixing in volume two. And uh, you don't, I feel like you don't usually see that approach to romance as much. And I think that in always looking for these takeaways, I, I think that might be key is to sometimes sort of cross the streams. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you know you're doing it or not, but to bring these things that aren't always brought into the genre, but are still fun. Well, that's, that's, one reason I guess that, you know, once I started writing, I stopped reading in romance. Um, and maybe I shouldn't Ooh. say that, but it's true. <laughs> because no, it's cool. I, A, I'm too easily influenced. And like I read uh, Susan Elizabeth Phillips' book, who's one of my right. favorite authors. Right, right. And, and it was about a runaway bride. And the next book I wrote was about a runaway bride. <laughs> <laughs> I, I immediately start thinking, oh, how would I write a runaway, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, But the other reason is that I know I don't do it quite like other authors. And I'm really prone because I don't have any background in this. And I still can't believe that I sell books. Um, <laughs> I, I'm really prone to self-doubt. Mm. So if I start reading other people in the way they do it, then I start thinking, oh, I have to do it that way. And that just really stifles me. Mm. So right. I, I, it's, I think I can get away with that because I've read so much in my life. I mean, right. I've read a ton of a lot of genres. So I think a lot of it is, you know, kind of bone deep of, okay. you know, how you, how you tell a romance story or whatever. And, and the self <clears throat> The self-doubt, that's a thread that I saw in um, some of the books of yours that I read was, and, and it was kind of consistent that the heroine hadn't gone to college or hadn't gone to a four-year college. And when I have known brilliant, amazing people, especially brilliant, amazing women who haven't had an experience like that, and you're like, but no, you're brilliant, you're amazing, it doesn't matter, and you can just tell that they carry that feeling with them anyway, no matter how brilliant and amazing they are. And so you you really, for me, you've really nailed that part of experience. I really loved it. Well, I have written, I actually have written some other books where the heroine actually out earns the hero. Oh. And um, 
and uh, sometimes and has you know has is quite educated and quite you know quite uh, accomplished at work. So you know I think I run the gamut, but um, but yeah, I think most of us you know somebody said once you're always comparing um, you're always comparing your insides to someone else's outside, right? Mm. And I think we all do that. We all say nobody else feels as shaky as I do, you know, going, Mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the wonderful things fiction can do for us is they can, it can shine a light on other people's insides and make you realize that you're not alone, that you don't, you aren't the only one who's scared, who's insecure or whatever it is. And that a lot of it is just going ahead and doing it anyway, which is how I, I write. I just, I'm terrified and I just go ahead and do it anyway. (laughs) And, um, and but I think you know many, especially many many women do this. You know the imposter syndrome is so common. Right, so if you write right, about yeah. the imposter syndrome, you probably aren't going to go too far wrong. So <laughs> a lot of who are going to relate to that? Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Because part of that insecurity, again, I didn't realize that there were books where the heroine earns more. And now I really want to, I'm going to go read one, uh, at least one. Um, but because what I was very aware with, we read, um, well, I read Fierce and Hold Me Close um, and some of Just for Fun. And um, the social divide, it was the different ways that there was this um, divide between the hero and the heroine where in Fierce, he's practically a billionaire um, but then in Hold Me Close, he's a high school principal who has some money. And the women are so much like, you use the phrase on the edge. Like, I think I think both those heroines talk at one point about just feeling so on the edge, which I found to be uh, almost breathtaking because that's so real. And so to the moment of the way, you know, I don't have health insurance. Um, so this, what what do you think about when you're thinking about the social divide between these characters? Or, I mean, what percentage of your work would you say even has that social divide? Would you um, classify a lot as a of, A lot of it does. A lot of it has some social divide. Probably 75% has that to one extent or another, um, partly because my New Zealand books are all about rugby players who, although although they're not paid at the level, it, that's interesting because they're not paid at the level of U.S. or U.K., um, athletes, um, but they so they're not super rich, which uh, and they're expected mm-hmm. to be normal guys. Right. So 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 you know if they make a million a year, they're in the very very top. Mostly they're making some hundreds of thousands a year, mm. and so it's you know they're they're comfortable, but it's not. It's they they don't have jets. Oh, right. I, I'm smiling so much because I smiled reading Luke because I had just gotten off fierce with the almost billionaire, which yeah. is so common. And then Luke and I was like, so she's being you know her hero is a hundred thousandaire. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, but that's still a you know that'll do. Well, I think that kind of gets to your grounded realism thing, right? Yeah. It's like it's much easier for someone to process a hundred thousandaire than it is a billionaire, and so that almost can have more impact. Because because it's something that we actually might have experienced, you know. Yeah, it's not magic. <laughs> well, I think that that's the reason. I mean, there's a reason I wrote Fierce, and I'll tell you if you want. But yeah, we but, want to know. <laughs> um, but I, I will in a second. But I just want to say first yeah. that um, that the reason I usually write, with a couple of exceptions, a guy who is significantly better off than the heroine, is that I know from my own life, from the life of my sisters, from the life of my friends, how common that 
fear about money is, especially when you have kids and everything. And how much of the fantasy is, if only you could just like not have to worry about it. So that's more, that's more where I am typically with a story is that the gal's hooking up with a guy where she won't have to worry about it. She can choose what kind of work she wants to do. She can take time off if they have children. She can, she doesn't, have to like always be thinking how are we going to pay the mortgage and to me you know romance is escapism no matter how realistically you write it you know that is the point and there's nothing wrong with that um we all could use it and what you don't want to you don't want to escape to a book where she, where at the end of it she's still going to have to worry about paying the mortgage you know yeah <laughs> you want that problem to be solved for her. it's a nice fantasy right you yeah. know build, building on that Sylvia and I both talked a lot about the way that you use conflict and some ways that the conflict happens or doesn't have like doesn't happen in ways that you might traditionally expect for like plot A to plot B. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that conflict, I started going back to high school and like conflict is, you know, the hero, you know, man, man versus man or man versus nature. And it, it really seemed to me that again, in, in the selection that I had, that a lot of the conflict was like woman versus modern life, you know, like you say, this whole being on the edge and that that's really the conflict. And it's the thing that the hero and the heroine both wind up working on is step by step kind of getting her back off the edge and sort of, you know, her, you know, a co-rescue in that way. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, again, this is something I only think, think about after I've written books and, and, but to me, conflict, um, Artificial conflict to me is something that makes me not enjoy, particularly romance. Mm -hmm. I really don't enjoy Mm -hmm. um, artificially created misunderstandings that would be solved if the people just sat down and had a conversation. You know, I want to read in romance where I think these people will end up being happy together. And that that's why a lot of the stuff I might have enjoyed when I was 16 there's no way I'm going to enjoy now. If the if the hero is bor- is a borderline abuser, even if now he he says he loves the heroine, what happens when she doesn't do what he wants? You know, yeah. down the road, and um, or people who can't just have a discussion and solve their simple disagreements. You know, yeah. um, that's they're not going to be happy together. Yeah. So so I think conflict for me is the realistic thing. The the things that actually get in our way. And often they're ourselves, you know. Yeah. It's it's your own past and your own way of um I think Sylvia, you read um just for now. Yeah, and in just I did. for now, I think the conflict in that just comes from their own personalities and their past and their way of dealing with things. He tends to fly off the handle and say stuff in the heat of the moment. Right. And she tends to assume all is lost and run away. Yeah. So you see that earlier, and then you see that in a bigger way at the end. Yeah. So so it's yes, that one's that one's my one book that really has a big misunderstanding. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one, but it's still it's organic to the characters, and in general, like I do have other books like Just for Fun, where there is really no conflict of that kind whatsoever. The conflict is external. You know, it's a it's an obstacle, and he doesn't know that she'll be there for him, and then she is there for him at the end. And and the conflict is both of their, you know, dealing with things and growing up together and being able to be together and being able to solve things together. And I just, I don't agree that a romance has to have an antagonist. Mm. Early on in my um, 
early on in my publishing career when I had the month when everything just blew up about five months in, I was so excited. And an author who had like 50,000 followers on her blog chose my first book to write a thing about, to write a blog post about how it was bad. But she said, Romance House of an Antagonist. And I thought, why? I mean, in real life, do you go around and have like <laughs> evil mothers-in-law who threaten your marriage or, you know, or his ex-girlfriend? Or, you know, in real life, your conflict comes from the ways that you both are and how you're learning to be together. And why can't, why can't that be the conflict? Yeah. Well, and you know, as we've started this kind of study of writers who sell and who are entertaining a lot of people, I think one of the takeaways is there's kind of an approach to writing that tells you, well, you must have this, you must have that, you must have the other, you must plan it this way, you can't do too much of the other. Uh, 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 apparently, you know, like nothing we have read yet has like completely conformed to any of those rules. And sometimes there will, you know, something pretty big will be conspicuous in its absence. And I think that there are lessons there about, you know, write, uh, I, it's not so much throw the rule book out, but it is more like, you know, take command of it and take mm -hmm. command of what you care about and don't force yourself to do things that other people tell you you have to if you think you're on a good path the way that you're going. I was lucky I didn't know what any of the rules were, so you know, <laughs> I just kind of did it my own way. Yeah. yeah. I think it's easy, like, I don't know, I see lots of people who, especially in these writers group, who will get, like, bitter when they see these rules being broken, and then there's this kind of attitude that comes out, like, oh, you know, why is this thing selling? Like, it's not any good, you know? And they get, like, really kind of bitter about it, and I think that attitude is just, like, so destructive, and I have this attitude time sometimes, too. I remember when I first entered indie publishing, I read something, and I was like, jeez, like, people will buy anything, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. But it's, like, it's so unhelpful to look at the world that way um, mm -hmm. because it just it comes from a fundamental place of disconnection and not trying to understand other people you right. know and what they yes. want and what they care about and so I think like people talk a lot about writing to market but I think what writing to market fundamentally is more than like picking a trend and or anything else is just really trying to be open to what people want and what people connect with and to be able to see it in everywhere that it exists, even if it's not something that you personally want to have in your own work, but to at least be able to see it. I, I think one thing to remember that in romance in particular is that romance is a huge genre. Yeah. Mm. And it has a huge variety of readers. And that's what really surprised me because actually, you know, I didn't know about the whole Fifty Shades of Grey thing. I was in New Zealand and it hadn't blown up yet. <laughs> I, I'd written three books before that was even a thing. Yeah. So I think when something big like that comes along and everybody jumps on the bandwagon, you forget that there are a lot of women for whom that doesn't work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're looking for something else. So that's, but that is one reason why I couldn't figure out why I sold. Cause I didn't really realize, as I said, how wrong I'd gotten it until after. I <laughs> but there are a lot of women who, who, who want the, you know, for instance, a, a sort of a lower drama, more realistic, more feel good. Yeah. You know, it's like it's all become about this roller coaster of emotions kind of thing. And a lot of women really don't want to be all roiled and battered like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My best selling stuff still 
uh, remains, and you know, on a kind of perennial basis, are the, the New Zealand books. Despite the fact that my romantic suspense is published by Montlake, and right. which has so much push, the New Zealand books are what really work because they really are escape. They yeah. really are an escape. They're they're feel good. And I think for a lot of women, that's what I started writing for. I started writing for that woman like me who has kids and a job and, you know, maybe a quite a demanding job and you just want to like go to a happy place. Yeah. So I started just kind of writing those more happy place books. Yeah. I, th- I think that's so powerful to write for someone, not just to write for yourself, but to write for someone like you. I think that is like the ideal if, thing to do. What would and, bring them comfort? Yeah. I would say I write to market, but really the market, the part of that, when you drill down, like you drill down in through the, you know, through the billionaire BDSM books and yeah. you get down to what is it that's so captivating? Okay. There's the materialistic escape, that yeah. kind of thing. But I think more fundamentally, there's the idea. And this took me a long time to realize when I wrote a hero who wasn't, didn't do this well enough, I really realized the hero has to be crazy about the woman. Yeah. That is like job one. He's crazy about you. And he respects you, admires you, and likes you as well as, you know, being crazy about you sexually. Yeah. And, and um, like, at least for me, that's what I write, um, is that it's really important that he respect her and admire her and like her. Yeah. I think that he sees you for who you are and he loves you for who you are. I I mean, that's like the, you drill down and that's, that's the bottom line. You know, it's not about whether he ties you up or spanks you, you know, it's about crazy about you and whether or not you like tying up or spanking you, you probably, if you're reading romance, you really want a hero who's crazy about the heroine. Yeah. So I think the rules that you have to follow are actually much fewer, many fewer and simpler than you might think they are. Well, I think that's a perfect segue to our question about Fierce, because, I mean, Fierce is obviously a pretty different book than the rest of yours. I mean, yeah. so what, what inspired you to kind of dip your toes into the, the a little bit higher, higher key billionaire ish book? Mm-hmm. Well, what what that how that came about is pretty funny. I was writing um, another book. It was a New Zealand book, and in it, um, it had it was one of my more plot driven books. And you know, all my books are very character driven. That's where the conflict comes from. That's where my ideas come from. That's where everything comes from. But in this book, which had a little more plot, <laughs> the heroine is secretly writing billionaire BDSM. And so there's these snippets of, and she and the hero are just friends. They don't have a relationship yet, but she's taken the hero who is, uh, who is Maori, you know, is a New Zealand Maori. He's a rugby player and he's posing for these sexy photo shoots and people are writing fiction about it. So she's writing. (laughs) And so she's writing about him as this billionaire. And so a lot of her feelings for the hero are come out in these snippets, especially a lot of her sexual feelings. And so I put these things in the book and then some readers said, I want to read that story. (laughs) So that's why I wrote that story. And the original version of the book, I did it first in a, in a box set for Brenda Novak, the original version, she was much wimpier. Mm. She was much wimpier. But then when I started writing the whole book, she became much stronger and sassier and 
and and funnier and a lot more interesting. Yeah. And the book really changed. Yeah. So I wrote it for them and I just it was a total experiment. And then I started writing it and realized this should really be in first person. That would be way more interesting. So I'd never written in first person. And I found I really, really enjoyed writing it. You did so, really well. Wow. It was oh, really you. great. Yeah. 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 I was really pleased with how it turned out. And so now I am writing a series. My next book is going to be the next you know, something oh, like that. Fun. It's because yeah. it was it was fun to do. Challenged me in a new way. A couple things that really struck me with um, fears in particular. One was the number of times that hope would startle a laugh out of me. It's not that she is like a campy jokester like Bridget Jones, but in some ways she reminded me of Bridget Jones. But it was that her perspective would be so wry that over and over again I would just you know be laughing out loud. At, you know, at her and in the way that she was seeing things. So I think you really hit something there. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I said. When I actually started writing her, she got way funnier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, the first person really works for you. I mean, it was terrific. Yeah. And then so, uh, another thing that really got me was there is a type of twist that makes me feel like I'm smart and makes me feel like the characters are smart and makes me feel like the writer is smart. And so, you know, spoiling an, an early thing in um, Fears Hope has a younger sister who is getting sick and throwing up in the mornings. And it's not super obvious, but it, soon enough, I'm thinking, oh, she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And what got me, and I loved this so much, was about five pages later, the hero who's just barely met the kid is like, I think you should really get her to, to a doctor. I mean, don't you want to check this out? Isn't it obvious? And that happens rarely, but I adore that feeling where I got to kind of think I figured it out. And before the characters have gotten there, but then also to know that they were with me. And I, it, it just is a beautiful thing when it happens. So I wanted to call that out. What happens with that in my writing process is, you know, I know basically where the story is going, but the reason I can't go quite as fast as some people is that I'm always really trying to, um, you know, get into their heads and think, what are they thinking now in this situation, which can be quite an uncomfortable spot. You know, it forces you to dig kind of deep, which can be uncomfortable. But when I did that, that's when I realized that he would think she was pregnant. I knew what was wrong with her, but I realized, well, wouldn't you think she was pregnant? Right. So, uh -huh. so especially since I knew he had a, he had a sister who, you know, gotten, you know, he's, he's Maori, so he's got a lot of family. So he knows that. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's been around women who are pregnant. So that's where that stuff like that comes from, is just from my thinking, what is each person thinking at this moment? Well, I, yeah. it's really, really interesting to me to hear you say that it's just part of being in the character's head. And I think actually kind of writing from this natural, organic space of just living with the characters, like I get a lot of feeling, especially in the New Zealand series, that you're just sort of living with them and being in their space and in their head. And so... That allows us to not, you're never, I never feel like the hand of the author. A comment I get a lot, a lot in reviews is that, especially the New Zealand series, is that it's an easy read. And I think there can be a misconception about a book that's an easy read, that it's an easy write. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying that I, that I struggle necessarily because the, um, the books that have been the most successful often are the ones that just really flow and I just 
they're super easy. They are easy to write, but it doesn't mean that I just like dash something down and I'm done. You know, I really, I edit a ton as I go. I really don't understand why a book that, you know, people have lots of feelings. It's, you know, people cry when they read the book and they laugh and stuff like that. But just because it isn't all up and down all over the place, I don't, I, I kind of, um, uh, reject the idea that a better book is a book with more drama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's like, it's awesome. I think your sales reject that idea. I feel like this is what indies do well is there are parts of the market that people think don't exist because it's not yeah. necessarily what writers read for because a writer, they have different needs than someone who, you know, just kind of wants to maybe just a comfort read or whatever. But I think the point of the editing brings us to a really good point. I, what does your editing process look like? And I know that you had kind of an editing experience with Montlake and has that changed your, your process at all or? Um, no. <laughs> okay, cool. And, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, go out on the big limb here <laughs> and um, confess things that I usually don't. But, um, you know, my background is in copy editing. Yeah. And I was a copy editor and then I was an editorial supervisor. I, I have a very strong background in, in editing. Mm. And um, so other than the Montlake books and one of my indie books, I don't have any editing. That is amazing. As far as like typos and things, I seem to have as many in the Montlake books, which go through three rounds of developmental, a round of copy editing, and a round of proofreading. Yeah. I seem to end up with the same number of typos that I do in my indie books, which is about, <laughs> which is about two. You know, about a hundred thousand word book will have two yeah, yeah. couple of typos <laughs> in it. So I figure I'm not doing too badly. No, and I know that that is not all editing does. You know. Um, I would say the developmental editing ha- has influenced me in that. In some ways, it's made me more confident, um, and I think my developmental editor is very good about pacing, and that's something where, you know, she'll say, is this scene necessary? And that's enabled me to take a sharper look at what I'm writing and say, is this is this necessary? Could this be shorter? Am I slowing down? And um, But where I think I've decided I think I'm better is characterization, mm. because, you know, there have been some changes that I've made just because, you know, I try to be very open to the editing yeah. that I've afterwards kind of regretted. Sometimes I think a developmental editor can want to take away some edges from mm. your characters where they don't, they think, oh, this could, this sounds bad or this could offend or whatever. Mm. And I think, you know, like in Hold Me Close, I originally had more times where Luke was not as perfect. Mm. And, and I took those out. And that, that's the one negative comment on that book is Luke's mm. too perfect. And I think, yeah, he is. And so now I think I have more confidence because I can look back and say, yeah, I should have kind of stuck to that one. I do have uh, also, I should add, very strong beta readers. Mm. I've always had very strong betas. So it's not like the books are going out with no eyes on them. Yeah. And some of those people have had editorial experience. And some of them are very good at like plot, at overarching plot. Yeah. So they, they've certainly helped me in the same way a developmental editor would was saying, you know, I feel there's not enough arc at the end in this book or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think for editing, for it's just, I think, again, like, like we said before, there's really no one size fits all for being no. indie, you know, because I have beta readers for my work too. And so for my latest I sent it to beta readers and they said, oh, we all love it, but the third act falls apart. And of course, none of them could really say how or why or how to fix right. it. And so that's that's when I brought Marion and she was kind of like, well, obviously, 
the the couple has to solve their problem together because they mm-hmm. weren't. And it just was like such an obvious thing. But so I think for me, and I think for other writers who might be listening to your podcast, it's all kind of about looking at yourself and figuring out where you are. Well, I I do think um, like I should mention that the my book that's coming out next uh, next month from Montlake. Yeah, that's one on that one. I really like on Hold Me Close. I felt like if I hadn't used the developmental editor at all, it would have been a little different, but it would have been fine. I yeah. know I could have taken that book and just sold it. But on the next one that's coming out in that series, I really had an issue and I couldn't figure it out. And she mm-hmm. helped, she told me, and then you know. So there certainly are times where I need someone someone else to point it out. Yeah. So it, it really depends on the book for me. Yeah. Do you have yeah. any questions or thoughts for us, uh, Rosalind? There's one thing that I did want to address because it came up, you know, when we were discussing this podcast on, on yeah. keyboards, actually. And that's that somebody said... Um, you know, I think that uh, I was really surprised that romance romance writers care about craft. Yeah. Oh, geez. <laughs> and, and um, you know, which of course rubbed me the wrong way yeah. because as any any romance writer who's listen listening to this knows, romance has as much craft as any other genre, and romance gets dissed a lot. So much. Because guess what? It's read and written by women. Yes. But I did want to say I really think that the reason some people, some other writers in some other genres can dismiss the craft and romance and even why someone can look at a book that's selling really well and maybe has some clunky writing or whatever is, if it's selling really well, if it really works, it's because of the characterization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the emotion. Because yes. that's what romance is about. It's about eliciting genuine emotion. So you feel with the characters. And, you know, I think people can get so caught up in what their plot is and stuff like that mm. that you can kind of forget that. You have to feel with the characters. And that's that's what makes a romance sell. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that it's... Um, it's you care. You have to care. Yes. <laughs> you have to care that these two people get together and that and that they have to belong together. And and that's not accidental. It's not it's, easy. Let me tell yeah. you. It's really hard. <laughs> and it's not accidental. So so I think when anyone says, you know, oh romance, you know, romance isn't about craft, it's just, you know, anybody can do it. You just put this, you know, you can plug in all the widgets, all the, you know, things you want. But if you don't elicit genuine emotion, you aren't going to sell well. And I think, sure, we've all seen books that we think really are pretty, pretty terrible. (laughs) And, you know, if you're writing to a, to a really hot trend, they can sell some, but I don't think it's any foundation for a A career. career. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like for my first series, I came in, um, and it was, I really didn't know my characters as well as I should have when I started. Um, but it's like, you can tell I've just got these reviews that just take me to task on the character. Like one, And it's funny, they, one person like went through and read each book in the series. They like, you think they would have stopped, but no. Oh, yeah, there's always that person. Right, but like. the, wor- the worst part is they were right. Like, it's one thing if you get that one star and you're like, oh, you're just a hater. But then you read it and you're like, man, like, you're right, I did then not. They, then they go on and read all the others. And then you get a review that says on book six, it says, I don't know why I keep reading these books. <laughs> <laughs> 
Me neither, lady. Why don't you stop? Why torture yourself? It's costing you money. Like I'm taking your money and I'm causing you pain. And like just yeah. save yourself. And looping, looping this back around to our entire like foundational concept of we want to read authors who sell and kind of do our best to figure out um, why. One of my major takeaways is going to be that all of the least glamorous parts of real life, I don't have the right health insurance, my, you know, my heel is scuffed and I'm filling it in with magic marker, all these sort of mundanities that a lot of romance office romance would treat as well that's too trivial you know to really get into but all of these things establish heroines who are frankly i felt so much like me like so i know exactly where they're coming from i know where they've been as they're suffering and then the escape is this great guy comes along and sees her for who she is and loves her and but also doesn't even let, like I like that your heroes don't take over. They like yes. help out. <laughs> they yeah. help out gradually and thoughtfully. And is that an escape? Why yes. But, <laughs> but it's a, a remarkable and powerful in a new way escape. And I loved it. Well, I thank you. And I, I, I do think that for me, I do have to say that for me, you know, I am a strongly feminist person. And to me, the only way I can write romance that I feel good about is to feel that I am modeling um, in my books something that is real, something that is that that is healthy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I get I get that you can have fantasies that are not necessarily how you would want to live in a healthy relationship. That's okay. But for me writing it, I want to write what I consider to be a healthy relationship and that involves respect. Yeah. You know, so I and I want to write sex positive communication positive books where I as you say I'm modeling how you might ask your partner to do something more exciting yeah. and how your partner might do that in a way that is safe. Right. Where you can, you can explore the boundaries and you can still feel safe. Yeah. I mean, my first book, the, the hero was just really, I mean, he was a real not dark kind of character at first. And my goal was to kind of redeem him by the end, but I didn't, I don't think I quite managed to pull it off because I just, he went way too far in the beginning and then to get him all the way to the place where he needed to be by the end was just almost impossible so it's so it's hard it's really hard to mm -hmm. to do that kind of thing and, and I had read I had read a lot of romance and I was like why can no one do this like oh I'll write this it'll be easy yeah <laughs> and it's like no no one can do it because it's really hard yeah yeah well you know the fact is that most bad boys are just jerks and yeah. jerks don't make good husbands yeah they you know, don't they're jerks yeah, so I think this kind of goes with your detail too. I, I read lots of romance that doesn't have this kind of detail, and I think if someone hasn't lived for that, you know, hasn't lived through a bunch of stuff, they can't even recognize it as being false. That's, no, that's that's what I think. And I also, I've noticed that I can see through, you know, through Facebook and various things that w where my books resonate are mostly with women over thirty. They tend to be women who are married or have been married, or you know, and they tend to have children. And I think what it is, is that they have, they, they want to read a guy, those bad guys don't really appeal. And right. they have, 
too much trouble suspending disbelief. Right. That's where I am mm-hmm. saying that there is a much bigger market in romance than than maybe some authors realize. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of women like that. They don't want to read jerk guys. Right. Well, because they you can know? see the implications. They can see right. the implications and they can't believe that he's really going to change. Right. Yeah, I, exactly. They, they, just, they just have too much trouble with that because they've seen that guy. If they yeah. haven't yeah. been married to him, their sister was married to him. You yeah. know, that's, and that's, you know, where my experience comes from. I mean, I've been married for 30 years. So, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he, he got uh, a And, little, you know, even right. if I haven't been through things, you know, people that I know have been through things. So right. I, I, I've, I've known people with, who've been in abusive relationships yeah. or who've, you know, these, these sorts of, sorts of issues. And, um, so that, that is my, that is my audience yeah. and mm-hmm. stuff that maybe appealed to you when you were 16 or 20 and seemed exciting. doesn't seem exciting right. anymore. You want, you want the, an exciting guy who's also a decent guy. Yeah. Right? And I think that before someone kind of has had a relationship with someone that is really good and really healthy in a way that I think it's hard to have in your early 20s and maybe it's hard for anyone, right? Because there are kind of like these details you have to negotiate that it's just mm-hmm. can kind of seem kind of hard. But you kind of have this idea that you're like, oh, if I could just fix that relationship. You yeah. know, before you've been yeah. through like three or four, it's like you're like – there's this the fantasy is like if that could have just worked and then eventually yeah. i think you realize no that's never going to work mm-hmm. so like what's you know we got to think clearly you know and right. i think a, a lot of men when they read romance they see that fantasy being lived out and they think oh women just want the a bad, jerk a jerk but it's not women just want it actually they don't want a jerk they want a guy who has you know is confident and i think especially when men are younger it's it, confidence yeah. can be hard and they want a guy who is strong and you know and but so those two things can lead to some some dark roads and instead of trying to go on a different road i think a lot of romance says well how can we just beautify this dark road a little bit yeah and yeah. i think that as a fantasy that it is value but i think the more you live in a, the real world the more you realize like uh you know maybe a different road <laughs> so so i think a lot of this where where it does matter here for for the podcast yeah. is a lot of 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 it is realizing that there are different audiences out there there yeah, are right. different markets there is a market that wants guys who seem really appealing and really good guys and and they're they're sexy and exciting and especially that you can have sexy and exciting in bed and yes. dominance in bed without him doing that in other areas of your life. Yes, yes, so, that's so huge. There are a lot of women who want that. They want the sexual excitement, but they want the guy to be a decent guy in other areas of yes. his life and to and to not try and take you over. So so that's so just know who you're writing for and realize you don't have to write for everybody and there is right. more than one way to do it. Yeah. And that's that's like when I wrote Fierce, you know, I mm-hmm. actually, um, an, another uh, guilty secret, I had never read and still have never read A Billionaire Romance. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I was just writing what I thought worked and what I thought was sexy. And yeah. yes, he's a really dominant, but he doesn't, every time he tries to push too far, um, you know, outside of bed, she, um, she just... She pushes right back and she yeah. says, no. Or gets away, yeah. yeah. That's what, yeah. We, that's what yeah. I loved yes, about it. It was yeah. amazing. Uh, what is your intention with the not quite a billionaire tagline? Um, my intention with that was to say 
to, because I knew that I had a lot of readers, and I was right, who would never, ever read a billionaire BDSM story. Um, that a lot of my market is those women who just say, that is, you know, I, that is not for me. And they're really antagonistic towards it. And I wanted to say, this is a billionaire story, but not quite. So you can still read it. And it's still one of my books. It still has a strong heroine and a hero who respects her strength. And, you know, and an emotional journey that they go on. And he's still a guy you can love. And so that was why I gave it that tagline. And I wanted to put billionaire in there. But also I wanted to say it's still a realistic book. He's mm -hmm. not a billionaire because that's stupid. It's stupid. There aren't billionaires. <laughs> How many billionaires are there? And mostly they're either really geeky tech guys or really old. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> and yeah. I just had yeah. trouble with that idea. Yeah. So I just said, I'm going to make him a multimillionaire, which is possible. He's not going to be 26. He's going to be more like 36, you know. <laughs> yeah. So this is going to have, it's not quite a billionaire book, but it is kind of. And it's not even, I'm not sure you can even call it erotic romance because as usual in my books, they don't actually have sex till halfway through. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm doing this all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had sex yet. But it's sexy, you know. So, um, so it's not quite all those things. It's not quite erotic romance. It's not quite a billionaire story. So that was the reason I put that tagline on it. Yeah. It. I think there was one question we didn't touch on, which was kind of your voice. And if you feel like your voice as a writer has, has changed over time at all. I mean, I know that from reading, for me, there was kind of a, a difference in style between each of your three series. And I was wondering if that's just kind of a function of them being different genres and different things, or if that was something that you feel is a change over time and, and how you've written. I think that it's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, there's something in when you uh, work in educational publishing and you um, are talking a lot with elementary school teachers, there's something called scaffolding, scaffolding knowledge. And um, what it is is that you start, you don't try and make big leaps, you build. When I started my first three books, in first two books in particular, you know, they're very linear. They're like, they're just very linear journeys because I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I had to keep it pretty simple. And, um, you know, and they, and they did very well to my shock. But, uh, but as I went along, I was able to be a little more complex in the structure so there is that, but there's also the difference in voice and tone of the three series. That's definitely just a difference in voice and tone. And I have a fourth series as well, which is sort of in between. Um, it's challenging to me. It's more interesting. Uh, and that matters a lot to me. Um, and crazily, right when my New Zealand series was taking off, I was writing a book that was a historical reenactment reality show in Idaho. That book sold great, but that was what I wrote when my New Zealand series was taking off, which is huh. nuts, but it's for a really good reason. I said, I don't want to be stuck in a box. I don't want yeah. to feel like this is all I can write. This is all anyone will buy. Right. I need to know, are people reading me for anything more than the fact that it's New Zealand? And so I wrote something completely different and yes, they read that book. So mm -hmm. thank goodness. Um, so I think some of it's uh, that, uh, yes, the later New Zealand books do get a little more complex, but they still have more of that easy breezy tone mm. and, um, and more of that feel good vibe to them. So yeah. I think, I think it's both things. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just have such great admiration for, 
how you know simple and clear your style is but especially in New Zealand books it's just like the dialogue just zips right along you know it's like it is in some ways it is that sort of slice of life where we really live with the characters but on the other side it never feels like we never get bogged down with a bunch of introspection you know things are always physically sort of happening in the world or people are talking to her or we're making delicious bread pudding or you know it's like it's never like we don't have characters staring out the window for pages on it well yeah I mean it's just because that's what I like um yeah. you know I'm I'm a Jane Austen fan you know I mm-hmm. I mean I like I like funny. I like I like it to move. I don't like a lot of descriptions of scenery. Yeah. Um, I don't. I really don't like a lot of a lot of na- navel gazing. I've done a little more of that in later books. That's something where the editor will say, you know, where the editor did say, I think we need to see a little more internal what's mm-hmm. going on internally. But I like to see it from what people say. Yeah. You know, I, I much prefer prefer that. The one thing I did know when I wrote my first book was that thing, show, don't tell. That was the one piece mm. of crap I had. <laughs> and so I've always, I always really try to show how someone's feeling rather than tell you how they're feeling. Yeah, I think that's hugely important and really effective. And, and plus, I think, you know, you can be a little more subtle than maybe you think you can be. You know, not everything has to be big and painted in big, broad strokes. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely say your writing is very, is subtle. And it's really, I think that subtlety is really an interesting kind of counterpoint to what you might call the easy breezy. So it's like easy breezy, but there are things that are running real deep there. Well, that's actually something that um, is really interesting about the New Zealand series in particular. I don't get this comment on my other books, Mm -hmm. but the New Zealand series in particular, I will have two kinds of reviews. And one kind will say, total fluff. I enjoyed it. It was just an empty-minded, you know, escape. You know, really, really very dismissive. I mean, they'll say they liked it, but it was just like, almost like they're embarrassed that they liked yeah. it. You know? And then another kind will, will say, I was really moved by this. And people will even say, I changed my life in some way because, yeah. you know, so it's like people read it on different levels. Some people mm. are just reading it for the easy breezy surface thing and other people are maybe reading for what's underneath, which is fine. You know, yeah, people yeah. can enjoy it's their reader experience. It's not, I don't get to look over their shoulder and tell them how to read my books. Yeah. <laughs> my theory is that even the people who are enjoying it is the easy breezy readers, I think aren't, they're not, they're not writers. They're not developmental editors. So they're not necessarily aware of everything that's going on in their experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I yeah. think even someone who's reading it, they're like, Oh, it's total fluff. I think that, I think that they wouldn't have enjoyed it as much if those currents weren't there they may not have the words to identify it but if they you know keep coming back i I gotta feel like there's something a little bit more that they're responding to i think even if even if you know somebody once told me that the 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 only review you really need is did they buy the next book right exactly yeah (laughs) and i think that that's true i think as long as they're reading your books as long as they read the book to the end for one thing yeah even if there are things they hated about it right um, as long as they read to the end, you did something. Right, right. for sure. All right. Uh, do you have anything else, Mary? Um, I think I'm set. I mean, I think th- this has been fantastic. And, um, and Rosalind, I want to thank you so much for, jo- for joining us, but also just I love getting to see behind the curtain. Yeah, it was so great, Rosalind. And well, I mean, yeah, sorry. I'm just going to say, well, thank you so much. I mean, it's always fascinating to me to hear 
somebody's thoughtful comments on what I do because, like I said, it just comes out of some deep, dark part of me that I never, <laughs> right. I, I, I don't have a very good handle on what I've done. So it's very cool to hear what you, you all have to say about it. I'm glad you liked it. All right. Thank you so much, Rosalind, again. Thank yeah. you very much, guys. All right. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.